couple of things before we get going. Um, there, there's so many great things happening. I mean, we have so many moving parts this week, and it's been so fantastic uh, from having Ava up here singing, which we always love seeing the next generation of young men and women coming and serving and being a part of the church, to um, Brian Burns put on a fantastic movie night on Wednesday. We only had one person go to the hospital. It was fantastic. Uh, it was a really, really good evening where we had a lot of new families come and join us for the first time and see who we are and what we're doing. So we're excited about that. But you may have seen the work day and you're wondering, what's this work day all about? What's going on? Um, what, are we, what are we working on? What are we doing? Well, the reality is this, is that we have been looking and assessing the church for a while, trying to figure out what can we, how can we do more ministry here? How can we teach more men and women about who Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, and raise them to be disciples and fully committed followers of Jesus Christ? That's what we want to do. And we have all these rooms that aren't being used right now. And so what we're going to do is in phases, we're going to start renovating the rooms that we have here right now. And we're going to go ahead and we're going to start painting walls and ceilings and fixing floors so we can actually use those rooms. And we're going to convert uh, the youth room in the back. We're going to make a storage area for our, our staff and the ministries that are here. And we're also going to turn it into a giant workshop. This has been happening in a very small room. All of this, it is, it is not how we want it to be. So we're going to design a room for Rich and his team and facilities to be able to do the things that we need to do here at the church. And that comes with shuffling and moving closets and things around to consolidate what we have so we can utilize those rooms. And so we would love to have you come and be a part of that because the reality is this. In September, we're going to have a Bible study fellowships going to be meeting here on every Tuesday. So the women are going to come and they're going to meet here. We need rooms for them. They're going to meet in this room and all over our campus. Uh, the women's ministry is starting to develop a new program that they're going to start launching out. We're going to need rooms for those women to meet in. Life groups are starting on Wednesdays again soon. We want to have rooms available for you to utilize and to partake in learning and studying who Jesus is. And as the men start to grow, all these things are going to lead to more people learning, growing, understanding, and studying who Jesus is. And that is the hope that we have, that we could get this building kind of just reorganized and move things around. Some things we'll donate, some things we'll keep, some things we'll, uh, if you want to take them, like take them, like we have opportunities for things like that. But we would love your help. We'd love for you to be a part of that as we move forward with what God has for us in this next season of life. Now. We should probably talk about Jesus at some point. And so I want to I do that. Um, being back in Southern California, my wife and I have realized that everyone does everything outside. That's just kind of what it is. It's an outdoor kind of area. And in the summer, they do all these free concerts. Have you noticed it's like free concerts all over the area? So my wife and I last week, we walked down to one of these events at a park, and we said, hey, let's go and see what's going on there, and we went and saw a tribute band, because you get what you pay for, and it's free, so it's a tribute band, and it was the tribute band uh, Cars. If you don't know who Cars are, uh, it's just an 80s and actually early 70s band, and it was the first cassette that I ever bought as a kid, um, you're like, and some of you are like, what's a cassette? <laughs> and you're like, what about an 8-track? What about a record? <laughs> Real to real? And so we have all these things. So that was the first cassette that I bought. And I remember listening to songs. I'm like, I know all these songs. And I remember growing up, and it took me back to my childhood. And it reminded me of all the music that I used to listen to. And it really kind of started my love for music. And just what it did and what it was about. And I remember just going, man, I just, I love music so much. And, and at one point I was, I played in a couple of bands. And I wrote lyrics. And I, and I did all this stuff. And I just remember being moved by music. 
And maybe you can remember the first time you were driving in a car by yourself and having the radio playing and exactly what song was playing. Or maybe the first date that you were on or what was played at your wedding or when you were with a good friend and you went on a, you had a fun adventure and this song was on, it just takes you back there. And you go, why do we love music so much? Why does music, I mean, every car comes with the radio. Every Sunday we sing, you're like, that's right, you do. We, why, what is it about music? There's something about how music stirs in us something deeper. Whether it's about our lives or where we've come from, it draws us in. Like, music speaks to our heart because it's from the heart. That music comes from the heart and these areas of our life. It speaks about life. Many times the songwriters speak about what's happened in their past, what's happening right now, what their hopes and dreams are for the future. And we realize at times that there's something about how they are speaking in a way that relates to where we are in life. Because they have emotions and they have feelings and they have hurts and they have pains and they've gone through difficulties. And that speaks to us at different times in our life. And then when you set that to music, it's more than poetry because there's, there's something physical that happens when music is played and rhythm is done and it starts to move in us in a rhythmic way. We're like, I'm moved because of this because we understand where they're going. Now, I would say this, and I say this at times about different things, the idea of music, the idea of singing, the idea of worship, it's an outward flowing of what's happening in the heart. And so when someone shares that, we're drawn in. And we're going to spend five weeks in the book of Psalms. That's what we're going to be for the next five weeks before we launch back into our series in Acts. And so I, even talking with people about this, like, well, are you going to share this psalm? Are you going to share this psalm? Are you going to share this psalm? I'm like, oh, I only got five. <laughs> There's too many psalms to share. And so it's like, oh, which one is best and which one do we do? But we're going to try to hope, the hope would be is that you get to see the psalms for what they really are. The word psalm simply means song. That's what it means. It's a collection. The book of psalms is a collection of 150 songs, poems, and prayers to God. The, the book of Psalms is actually gathered after the exile uh, of Babylon, right? So there was this exile that took place, and so they started to bring all of these songs and all these poems and all these prayers in, and they used them at times that the, the priests would have a choir that they would sing these songs at times, but it's not a hymnal. It's 73 songs that were probably written by King David from what we can tell, and they trace many different points in his life and where he went and all the calamities. And so as he's going through his life, as he's going through uh, ups and downs and everything in between, he starts writing these songs and these poems about where he's at. And maybe you're like, oh, this song's connected with me because I went through a difficult time. And when David was going through a difficult time, I felt the same way. And he can shed light on who God is. It connects the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, to the Messiah and that he was going to come, the one who would save the Jewish people and ultimately save the entire world. It's full of laments and brokenness and hardship, but the theme of those laments is that it always moves to praise of God. That is a book that's full of faith of others that trusted God and walked with God. It's a book of hope in hard and difficult times. And it would make sense that this book of Psalms speaks to so many people over this thousand years in a broken and fallen world. 
that we can look to those that have gone through difficult circumstances and hardships, and yet they were able to praise God. It wasn't that the problems just went away at times, but they were able to endure those difficulties. They were able to endure those hardships because of something in the Psalms and what it's doing. The book of Psalms is, is broken up into five different sections, five parts, if you will. But all of them are meant to do one thing. They're all meant to cause us to reflect on God, His character, His nature, and the main hope of a Messiah that would come and save this broken world from the sin that is destroying it and to connect us back to God who made us and who loves us. And as we do this, and we're only going to hit the five, that you would be drawn into wanting to read the Psalms more and seeing how God wants to speak to you with where you are in life and that you could find that hope. As you go through difficult, difficult circumstances, you could see God for who He really is because these Psalms are really singing the praise and the worship of a God who has done so much to be engaged in our lives. And with that, I want to read the first Psalm that we're going to be in. It's one that I really love. It's one that's near and dear to my heart. It's one that I think that most people would know. Even if you're not a believer, you've probably heard this psalm at some point in a movie, at a church, at a funeral, somewhere. And it's Psalm 23. It says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that as we move into this time of studying your word, that you would bring us hope. You would bring us encouragement. You would speak to us today in some way as we look at your attributes your character traits, your interaction with us and how you deal with us, that you would show us more of who you are that would cause us to have a great comfort knowing who you are, that you hold all things in your hand and that you are sovereign. Lord, I ask if there's anything that I have written that is not from you, that you would take it from my lips, my mind, and that you would be praised and glorified this morning. We love you. We pray this in your glorious name, Jesus. Amen. So... What is it about this psalm? Maybe me even just reading it to you, you're like, ah, I remember, yeah, I know that psalm. Why is it that we read this psalm at so many funerals? If I'm just honest to share a little bit about my life, it's actually the psalm that I read my dad when he was on his deathbed a year and a half ago, and I sat there in the living room and I read him this song, this psalm. Why did I do that? I just read it to someone else two weeks ago while they were getting ready to go home to see Jesus. Why do we turn to this particular passage of Scripture? See, it brings comfort, and it points us to who God is and what He's like. 
and how he interacts with his people. As I was studying this week, I was kind of taken back as I was breaking down the passage a little bit, and you start to see patterns in things, and you start to see uh, how the writer would write it, and it shows you things that you didn't see before. As you see David writing, it's interesting, he's speaking in the first person. And the pronouns that he uses is I, me, and my. And I started to count those out in these little six verses. He says I four times. He says me seven times. And he says my six times. And you have to ask, out of these 17 times that he refers to himself, why is that significant? Why is that important to the reader when we're doing it? Because he's talking about a personal relationship with God. At times we see that he talks about Israel and his people and the nation, which is true. But he's also speaking about a personal one-on-one relationship that God has with his people. And I know that he's talking to God because he uses capital L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh, which is the proper name of the Lord. But the interesting part about that is he starts that way and he ends that way. And so if you look at what the writer is saying, is that he is the one that holds it all together. It starts with him, and it ends with him, and it's all about him. And without him, none of this is even possible. Now, we don't live in a livestock-heavy area. The squirrels and the rabbits don't count that run around the area, okay? Um, we, we aren't in that kind of society. Maybe you grew up in that and you were around animals, but we can have a hard time understanding the analogy that David's trying to use here as he talks about a shepherd, that um, the Lord is my shepherd. Like, we don't always understand that. But we need to remember something that's really important to this story is that David was a shepherd. Before he became the warrior, before he became the king, David sat in the field with stinky, nasty animals watching over them year after year after year after year. That was his job. That's what he did. As a matter of fact, as we uh, find the introduction to David at the first time, it's in 1 Samuel 16, 11, and it, and it says this, And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. That's David who he's talking about. He tells us that where we can find him, before we find the anointed king, the king in which all kings would be held up to as a plumb line, he was out in the fields watching sheep. Interestingly enough, as uh, the current king Saul is dealing with a big problem. There's this army. The Philistines want to come and take over the land and defeat them. There's this guy named Goliath who's taunting the people there, and everyone's petrified to go and do that. We see that young David comes to visit, and he's talking with the king. He says, I'll fight the guy. And this is what he says to Saul when he's questioned about going up against this giant. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Now this is chocked full of the gospel story about how God is the God who pursues us and how sin has us in his mouth and he goes after us. But I'm not going to go there. You can do that on your own. But what we see is at the heart of a shepherd, at the heart of being a shepherd is this, it is care. 
It is caring for what we see in this instance was the flock or the sheep. See, David knew sheep. He had studied them for many years. He had watched them, seen how they interact. They're rather helpless. If you're not familiar with this particular animal, they're not at the top of the food chain. No one sits in a room with a sheep and is afraid that they're going to get mauled. That, that's not. As a matter of fact, they're at the bottom of the food chain. They're very easy targets. They don't put up a fight, and they're very defenseless. As a matter of fact, they don't care well for themselves. If their wool grows too long, they can become so heavy that they literally topple over and then can't get back up, and they'll just lay there saying, please don't eat me. That's their only defense. That's all they have. And so they have this really small intelligence. They need constant supervision to be cared for, to be looked after. They will get themselves in trouble all the time, and if you leave them alone, they will wander off into danger. I wonder what that sounds like. I don't know. We'll get there. It's no wonder the Bible would say that David was a man after God's own heart. And not that every shepherd is a man after God's own heart, but David loved God and he did something that God does and how he cares for us, how he deals with us in this life. When he thinks about God, he has a proper perspective of who God is because he sees God as the shepherd and he sees himself as the sheep. Do we see ourselves that way? Do we think that maybe we're the shepherd at times? Or do we see ourselves for what the Bible describes as these helpless creatures that have no ability to do anything for themselves? And David saw that. He understood his dependence on God for everything. See, God is a good God. He's saying that I'm lacking nothing. Uh, in the book of Philippians we would say, uh, Philippians 4, 19, say, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That he provides all of our needs, everything that we need. It's interesting. It says, uh, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Why, why is that important? Because if we truly believe that God is providing everything that we need, all that we have, we don't look elsewhere. But what do we do as people? Things don't go the way that we want. We think that we need more or something better. And if God is not providing that thing that we think that we need, what do we do? We look elsewhere. We pursue other things. We hope that those things will bring us the joy, the satisfaction, the hope that we want and desire in life. That this thing will bring me the joy that I need. And David is saying, no. I am lacking nothing, that God's provision is complete in every single way, and so I do not want anything else. And one of the things that I want to do as we work through these verses is I'm going to read a verse, and I'm going to talk about character traits and attributes of God. In every verse, I'm going to say, here's some things about God, and then we're going to talk about why I did that. So what we see here right off the bat is that God is a good provider, that God is a God who cares for his people. Verse 2 says, He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside still waters. To lie down means to have rest. Because God's great provision in our life, we can rest. We can rest knowing that He is the one doing the work in our life. Green pastures point to the nourishment that He would provide. So a sheep would want green grass. It has the most nourishment than these ruddy, dried up weeds. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of that I'm giving you everything you need that you can rest and you can eat and you can be provided and nourished in your life. The prophet Ezekiel would say this in 34, 14 through, I'm going to go all the way through 16. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will build up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. That is who God is saying this to. And it's great because as you read about this, and he's saying, I am going to seek out those that are lost. I'm going to seek out those that are gone. I'm going to bring them to a place where there is nourishment, where they don't know they need to be, where it's safe and fruitful. This is all in light of the previous section in that chapter where God is calling out the leaders of that land as saying that they are bad shepherds. They're not caring for their people. They're neglecting the needs of those that are there. And he says, I will go and do it myself. I am the only one that can take them to the place that they need to go. It says he's leading us to still waters. What does that mean? Well, if you've ever gone on a large body of water and it's calm, there is nothing more fun than paddling on a glassy body of water, right? Paddleboarding is so easy when it's just smooth, kayaking, windsurfing, whatever, it's easy. But as soon as those waters get rough, it's very hard to stand. It's very hard to move forward. I lived in Seattle, and I'd try to go out and paddleboard about three, four times a week. And I remember I'd go out there in the morning, and sometimes it'd be glassy, and I'd go in the afternoon, and it would be waves, and I would just be fighting and just barely trying to stay up. But there is this sense of the world has a lot of chaos, doesn't it? The world has a lot of calamity in it, and he's, and he's referencing this water as being like that. But when we are with God, he leads us to a place of peace, that there is peace when we are connected. There's calmness when we are connected to him. Maybe you feel like that in life. Maybe your life feels out of control, like a raging ocean or a, or a lake that has just white caps on it because the wind is ripping through it so much. Maybe you're looking for peace in your life as everything is falling apart and in shambles. Like, I just need peace. David is telling us that God is the God that offers that peace. That's what we see in our next set of attributes about who God is, that God is a God of peace. God is a God of rest. That God is a God who brings nourishment. And what's really important that is He is the one that leads us to peace. It's not me, it's not my ability, it's not my thoughts, it's not my righteousness, it's not my spirituality. It is God that leads us to peace as we are led by Him to where peace lays. In verse 3, it would say, He restores my soul, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. <clears throat> this shepherd that David's speaking of, this God that he worships, is one that restores souls. As I think about this, um, my mind goes to, if, if you've driven through uh, any part of the United States and you get off kind of the city areas, you get into country roads, you see a lot of just open fields. And inevitably, 
out in those fields, you'll see some dilapidated vehicle sitting in a field with weeds growing out of it and grass growing around it. Now, that vehicle didn't grow out of the ground. At some point, someone drove that vehicle into that pasture and says, oh, I'm going to go work on the back 40, or I'm going to do this or that, and something broke. And then they couldn't fix it. And then the tires started to rot. And, the, and it, just, it just stayed there. Do you realize that is not the purpose of that vehicle? It's not meant to be an ornament. That car was made to be driven, to be used, that there would be a driver behind the wheel of that vehicle and it would move you from one place to another. That is the design of that vehicle. But for that vehicle in that barn or in that field to be able to do that, it needs to be what? Restored. It needs to be completely gone through and transformed to be what it was meant to be. Our life has purpose. It has meaning that it was actually designed to do something. We've been created for a specific purpose in this life. And when we live outside of that purpose, we are like a beautiful old truck sitting in a field, not accomplishing anything. But he's saying that this God is the one that restores my soul. Maybe you've asked, is this all this life is really about? You ever asked that question? You ever sat there and go, is this it? Is, is this really as good as this life is going to get? The answer is no. This isn't all there is. There is so much more. You have value, eternal value, because you've been made in the image of God. And when God restores our soul, we can do what he's called us to do. The, we would see the, the Bible kind of points about what our goal in life is. And the chief end of man is to glorify God, that we would bring glory to God, that he would be lifted up, that it wasn't our namesake that would be lifted up, it's his namesake that would be lifted up. That's, that's the idea. He leads us in paths of righteousness. That means that David's talking about what? The instruction from the word of the Lord, what God has called us to. It's God's work. It's not my righteousness. It's his righteousness. What is righteous? The Bible would say in Romans 3.10 that no one is righteous, no, not one. But God is. So he has to be the one to lead me in righteousness. As he says, this is how life works best. We have to believe and trust God that this is how life is meant to live. That we submit to who he is, we submit to what he says, and we trust that if he has designed how everything functions, he knows best. And so we find here in our attributes of God that God is a God who makes things new that he leads and he guides us, that he makes us righteous for his glory, not ours. Verse 4 would say, <clears throat> even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David understood the state of the world. He wasn't confused or blind to the fact that this world is broken. This world is messed up. We don't have to look far to realize that something's wrong. We don't have to go, oh, I wonder if everything's perfect now. We, we just don't. We turn on the news. We look at the newspaper. We watch people on social media. We interact with people in person, and we know that there is a brokenness to this world, that there is an evil, that sin came, fractured everything, 
It has affected everything in this entire universe. It is not working the way it was meant to. That's the reality of it. And David saw this. He saw that there was something out of whack. He sits in this reality. And I'm sure you do too. You sit in this. David walked around every day and went, it's broken. Things are broken. They're not working. And so what we have is the idea of the valley of the shadow of death is that there is a shadow, a cloud that hangs over everything, that ultimately there is death, spiritual death and physical death, that they are there, that they are waiting. It's inevitable. The older we get, the more we think about it, right? Like there's, there's going to be an end to my life someday. I'm not going to last forever because there's this looming problem of death waiting for all of us. And we can see that, and we can feel that, and we can get afraid. It can paralyze us for who we are as individuals. And what we see is that David's going to say that we don't have to fear this evil, this sin, this death that's here. We don't have to. And he tells us the solution. He actually tells us, how, how do you not fear evil? How do you not fear that all of this stuff is going on? What cast away this fear? For you are with me. It is the presence of God that cast away fear. I remember I used to do stuff in Seattle, and, and it was, you know, when I was doing ministry in Seattle, it was kind of shady. There was a lot of dangerous things that happened. And I remember that I had to deal with a lot of some of those issues that would happen at the church. And I would have to engage people that I didn't know who they were, where they were from, or what they would do. And I knew that it could be dangerous. But I had Officer Jason with me. And whenever Officer Jason was around me, I just wasn't that afraid. He was bigger than me. He was probably stronger than me. He was packing heat. He was more trained than me. And I would engage people that I normally wouldn't engage on my own because I had someone stronger and better with me who could protect me. And I didn't fear what was going on. And I could press into it because Officer Jason was there. See, evil is scary. Death is scary. But God is the one who holds life and death in his hand. So who would you fear more, death or the one who controls it, who bows to its every whim? But yet this God is for us, is with us, and cares for us. His rod and his staff invoke a couple of pictures. One is that it's protection, right? That you would have a stick or a staff that would beat people away or keep them off limits from where you are. So you've got that protection aspect. But the other side is that it's discipline. So I can understand, like, yeah, I, I am comforted by the fact that I am defended by God. Like, I'm, that brings comfort. But why would David have comfort in the discipline of the Lord? Why would he go, well, that brings me comfort. That makes me feel good. You're like, I never grown up, I don't like discipline. I was never comfortable with that discipline. Here's the thing. Discipline comes for those that we love and we care about. As a parent, I, I discipline my kids when they don't listen. They'll tell you. I don't do it perfect. I try my best. And in the moment, do you think that they are like, Father, thank you. Your discipline is so comforting to me. I enjoy it so greatly. You are Father of the Year. That is not <laughs> how that goes. They don't like it. They're frustrated with me, and they voice those concerns very, very easily to me. 
But do you know the reality is this? The discipline that I give them for the action of disobedience or wandering off is not nearly as bad as it would be if I would allow them to walk into it on their own. The dangers that they would endure would be horrific. God disciplines those. You know who I don't discipline? The neighbor kids. Not my kids. They're not my kids. I discipline my kids because I love them and care for them. I've gone to great lengths to show them everything that this world has to offer and who God is. But see, that's what he's saying is that I love you so much that I will, I will protect you from your folly that you don't even realize is folly in those moments. We tell our kids all the time before we punish them, you know that we love you. And then they go, oh, great. Now you're going to just tell me that I can't do something I want. Because we always want to preface the fact that this is out of love, not out of hate, not out of anger, and not because we despise you. So God gives courage. God gives comfort. God gives care. God gives protection. That being connected to him kills fear. And he gives loving discipline to his children. Five, he's going to shift. He's going to take the picture of the shepherd. He's going to shift for here in a second. He's going to move to something different, a different symbol. So the shepherd is the one that cares for the flock, but now he's going to move into who he is and where he's at in life. And it's the idea of a host who cares for a guest. Now, the Middle East, having someone in your house, having someone eat at your home with them is an invitation more than food. It's an invitation to relationship is what it really is. Even more so than we have in the States. We invite someone over for dinner. We say, hey, come over, be a part of my life, have some food. I'm going to put you in a spot where you can see really who I am. So there's an aspect of relationship, but not as much as we see in the Middle East. At the same time, as he's moving to this other idea that it's more than just a meal, it's more than just being in relationship with him, but one of the responsibilities of the host when a guest came to the house is they provided protection. When you come to my house, you will be protected. That when you eat, you don't have to fear death or violence or being taken over, but the, the host would then offer that protection. Maybe you've read the story with Lot and his wife in Genesis 19, and you always wondered, how come they didn't just throw the angels or the guests out to the angry mob that wanted to abuse them? Because this is exactly what they were exercising in that moment, a protection over the guest in that home. If you were going to be a guest in my home, you are as though you were family, and I will protect you. And that's who God is. So this means that we're able to eat safely in the presence of our enemies, that though they may be there, if God is our host, then we are protected. We don't fear that attack. It also means that our enemies can watch us take enjoyment in God and His generosity. We are God's guest. We are welcomed into His presence. We can have true fellowship with God now. The anointing oil shows that, that God offers refreshment and soothing, that the oil was a refreshing way, a soothing way to his guests that they come in, that God wants us to be refreshed. He wants us to be soothed from all the pains and the aches and the cuts and the, and the bruises of life. That's what he's offering us. 
And it says that God pours out his blessings that our cup, that our life would overflow. That it cannot contain it. It overflows. God does not have an end to the blessings that he pours out on his people. And because he has no end, he can be abundantly generous with how he pours those out. If we have a limited resource where we measure everything out, don't we? Well, I don't want to give out too much. Don't, 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 don't waste a drop. God's like, I got drops for days. He just pours it out, and the cup overflows. And what I love about this idea is that God is not stingy with his blessings. He is abundantly generous. He does not hold back for his guest, and he gives the best. That is our God. Our God is a host. Our God is a provider. Our God gives blessings. Our God is a protector. He gives safety, and he is generous. Last verse. Surely goodness and mercy me shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is no doubt in David's mind that God's goodness and great mercy will follow him. He says, surely. The word follow actually is a little bit different in the original language. It actually means to pursue is what it means. It's to pursue or to chase after or to chase us down with his goodness, to chase us down with his mercy and his grace, that he pursues after us. It reminds me of the poem of Francis Thompson uh, in, from 1890. I was there. It was beautiful. And it's, it's called The Hound of Heaven. I'm not going to read it all. It's very long. I would recommend reading the entire poem. But it starts this way. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth ways. Oh, of my own mind. In the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. And then the rest of it is about how God continually and steadily chases after him and pursues him. That there are going to be times when we're going to think that something is better than God and we are going to run after those things. Yet God is a God who pursues, who chases after, who doesn't give up, who knows that where you're going is not healthy and it's dangerous and he loves you enough to go after you and all he is waiting for you to do is to turn around and see him and go, my God pursues me, loves me, chases after me. We didn't earn that mercy. We didn't earn that grace. But yet he offers it freely. And he makes a declarative statement. I shall. It's not a hope. It's a fact that he will be in the house of the Lord forever. That he will be with God for eternity. That this life that we exist in that seems so difficult is a blip on the screen that it goes away after a hundred-ish or so years that we will stand in the presence of God for forever. And we see that God is a God who is full of goodness. God is a God who is full of mercy. That God pursues us. And that God gives eternal rest. That's the forever part. Maybe you can start to see how this passage brings comfort. Because all David is doing is talking about how great God is. He's talking about his character. He's talking about his nature. He's talking about how he loves, pursues, cares, protects, chases after us in all ways. 
that there is hope in the midst of chaos and calamity, that there's an assurance of life and the life to come, and that this is not all that there truly is, and that there is not an end for those that belong to God. You may say, Simon, that was for David. What about me? I'm not David. I'm not this shepherd. Like, I'm not a man after God's own heart. Like, what, what does that mean for me? Well, I want to read you something. Because this is for you. That God does care about you. It says this in John 10, starting in verse 11 all the way through 18. I can't break it all down, but we need to read this passage to understand what Jesus is saying in light of this particular psalm. He says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from the Father. I just, Psalm 23 is so beautiful, but Jesus is the incarnation of Psalm 23. He is the good shepherd. He is the one that pursues after us. This is the gospel. This is the truth that he knows his sheep, that he chases after him. When he talks about this other flock that's not a part of the fold, who's he talking about? Us. He's talking about the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, that he is pursuing them, he is chasing them down, that he's bringing them in, that there will be one flock and one shepherd that all will worship Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus would come and lay down his life shows that he is the good shepherd, that he would take our sins and place them on ourselves, that he would step in the way of our harm that's meant for us because we have earned and deserved God's wrath from rebelling against him and rejecting him. That he went to the cross and he took that punishment that we rightfully deserved And he gives us his righteousness so we can be right in the eyes of God through the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for anyone that would call on the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't know, I just don't. Can I tell you this? You can have the same relationship that David has with God today. The good shepherd that David's talking about is Jesus Christ, and you can call on that name. You can have that peace. You can have that joy. You can have that comfort. You can be courageous when evil comes. I'm not saying all your problems are going to go away, but you will be with the one, the one true God who protects, who casts out evil, who casts out fear, who gives you an eternity of rest with him, who leads you beside still waters. 
And as I was looking at this, I said, well, how is Jesus this way? That means that, that God cares for you, that Jesus cares for you, and you don't need anything else. Jesus is all you need. That Jesus gives you nourishment, and Jesus gives you peace in your life. That Jesus has restored your soul, and that he has given you a new heart when he died on the cross. That Jesus is leading you to look more like him every day and submit to his word and his authority. That no matter how bad this world is, that you don't have to fear because you have Jesus with you. Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And we don't have to fear its effects anymore. It does not have any hold on us if we have placed our life in Jesus Christ for you who are believers. That, that Jesus protects us with his rod and corrects us and gives us discipline so we will not falter, that we will not stray. That Jesus gives us comfort. That he has lived this life. He knows what you've gone through. And yet he did it perfectly and offers you that perfection. That Jesus has welcomed you into the great banquet feast where you can be in relationship with him someday. And someday we will sit at the banquet table of the Lamb and we will celebrate with our God together. That he pours out his blessings on you. And Jesus is the blessing that overflows over and over and over and over again in our lives. That he forgives over and over and over again. That is the Jesus. That is the blessing that he gives. All that other monetary stuff, that's just gravy. That's all that is. It's just gravy on the side. The real substance is the overflowing that we have, the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. That is our focus. That Jesus pursues you as much as he did the first day as every day that follows. That he calls you back to him. That he calls you to reject anything that you would put in place of who he is. And that you will be with Jesus forever. You know what makes heaven so amazing? Jesus is there. That's what makes heaven so amazing, is that we get to be with our Savior, the good shepherd who cares for us. This is not the end. There is an eternity waiting for us. And his name is Jesus Christ. My question today is, who is your shepherd? And where have you placed your hope? If you are looking at this world and you do not know how to endure it, and you're like, I, I can't even endure it, let alone thrive in it, that I would tell you that you have one that has provided the way that you could not only endure but thrive in this life as a follower of Jesus Christ under the good shepherd, and his name is Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, I thank you for this passage. Lord, I feel as though I've done no justice to it whatsoever this morning. But I know that you can use this to glorify you and to praise you and to lift your name up high. <clears throat> Lord, as the band comes up, I ask that we would reflect on who you are. For those that have been saved, I ask that they would realize what they have in you, Jesus. They would celebrate you that they would look at this world and almost laugh in the face of what it offers compared to an all-powerful, almighty God. Let us understand that David was a normal man like everybody else, but because he understood this, he could press into the dangers of this world, that he could press through the calamities of his life. Lord, I ask that for those that don't know you, would today bow a knee, and they would call you the good shepherd, 
They would make you the Lord of their life. They would call on your name for salvation and forgiveness of sins. We pray this in your name. Amen.